All right, so I'd like to continue today with our uh, discussion of uh, Yoga Sutras by Patanjali. And we had talked talked earlier about uh, the beginning of chapter two, where he actually addresses Kriya Yoga. He says, this is what Kriya Yoga is, which is intense self-discipline, self-study, and letting go of the ego or learning to rely upon God, upon the infinite at all times. So this is... This is how he begins this chapter entitled Kriya Yoga. Kriya is action. So these are the actions we engage in in order to wake up, in order to become fully conscious, mindful, um, and aware of our true nature, of our essence. And so uh, as he goes on through this chapter of practical application and understanding the obstacles, the obstructions, and what our real objective is here, he says that um, the world is available for us either for sensual experience, for, the, for feeding the senses, for experiencing what's happening around us, or for spiritual awakening. So he gives us you know, an opportunity to, to determine or to uh, choose what's important, what's really important. Now, of course, um, we have sensory input to have a body and to be on the planet. Of course, we're involved with the world in a sensory way, but we have to decide what's most important. Is it most important for us to feed the senses and to stay on this wheel of pleasure and pain, suffering, misery, uh, occasional joy, um, um, to continue this with this uh, process? of being identified with the world, with the separate sense of, of uh, identity and not being awake to ourselves, not being liberated, not being free, not being conscious. So we choose uh, in the direction of our spiritual awakening path. And in order to, to accomplish that, in order to move beyond this false identification with material reality, and this is, again, he emphasizes this in many ways, but he says, you know, the basic obstacle, the basic problem is that we as spiritual beings have become identified with the material world. And not only are we identified with the material world, but we identify the material world as having, as, as being uh, independent and having its own agenda and having its own um its own actions there's some intelligence behind all these things we get we uh, attribute uh, intelligence to all the things that are happening around us the forces of nature uh you know the individuals and and all these all these circumstances and events we see them as having some independent almost consciousness of their own someone asked me yesterday about you know, what's, what's the deal with natural disasters? Is this God punishing us? Is this, you know, we have these, these situations that occur and we have to react to. And, and I thought about this for a minute and I said, well, you know, it's only a natural disaster if you happen to build your house on the beach in an area where hurricanes come. It's only a natural disaster of our opinion about what nature is doing what nature is doing is what nature does hurricanes happen weather blows you know the sun comes and in, in, uh, in, in its cycles the sun comes and bakes the land and you know nothing grows for a while we get desertification um, things change constantly in harmony with this evolutionary process it doesn't have an agenda that's not punishing itself or anybody else. It's just the way it works. Just like our body has a way that it works. So nature and the environment has a way that it works. And it's only when we plunk ourselves down in the middle of this and then have an opinion and say, well, this is a terrible natural disaster. Nature doesn't think it's a disaster. Nature is just doing what it does. See? So, so our identification with this limited point of view and our tendency to associate uh, an, an intelligence and some um, some intentional process or procedure that's going on behind these things, this is ignorance. This is a mistake. And so Patanjali says, you know, the ideal is for us to wake up, to become 
to dis- to learn to discern to discriminate what's really true what's really what's my nature and what's my relationship with this environment and what's my relationship with god this ultimate reality and so in order to do this in order to accomplish that he gives us some some very practical uh guidelines so up until this point we've talked we've been talking sort of philosophically and looking at the psychology of how the mind works and you know how we interact Um, but now at the end of this second chapter on kriya yoga he he gets right down to it and he says okay this is this is how you do it here is the program here are the eight steps that will result in awareness in in samadhi in this oneness consciousness in this and in this oneness consciousness in our deep meditation we come into the awareness of what we are and we tend to there's a tendency to neutralize to um, remove to disempower subconscious conditionings mistakes in viewpoint and so we so we we lose those those tend to be washed away tend to be neutralized and at the same time our powers of discernment and discrimination become refined so that in this process of going through this this uh, very clearly defined approach to life to, to our entire life by going through this process the result is that we wake up fully to the nature of what we are and we come into a harmonious relationship with life on all levels and so and his eight steps uh this eight step path is very similar to the buddhist uh path the buddhists have an eight step path and and it's no there's no uh surprise that there is a similarity because when Patanjali was putting together the Yoga Sutras, he 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 brought in information and technology and uh, and the useful practices uh, from many different disciplines. So the Buddhist discipline, he there was there are aspects of that in his Yoga Sutras. Samkhya philosophy, there are aspects of that. Some Jain philosophy, um, other other uh, teachings from the Upanishads and the Vedas. And so he incorporated all of these different things and took the essence, what was the most practical, the most important, the most useful, and put this together so that this little manual, this Yoga Sutra, gives us um, the the, uh, opportunity to really engage in a practical way, in a philosophical way, in an experiential way. So, so he begins his eight steps in this practical. Remember, we talked about the importance of being grounded, so that we're not spacey, so that we're not, you know, hanging out otherworldly, so that we're not um, um, incapable of taking care of all the things that we need to on the practical level. So, so he begins and says the first thing that we need to do is to see to some restraints, some restrictions. And the restraints and the restrictions are those uh, restrictions which will assist us in living in harmony with life so that we are not uh, being pushed around, so that we're not being put off of our center, so that we're not overly reacting. And so he begins in the first of his, uh, his guidelines and these yamas, these restrictions, is harmlessness. So he is saying... We want to restrict ourselves from from um, creating harm, from doing harm. So, and of course, on the the most gross level, this is we don't want to be violent. We don't want to be hurting anything or anyone. So, this is non-violence, ahimsa. And uh, and we want to extend this uh, wish of harmlessness from not just physical violence, not just interacting you know, on a, on a material level, but also mentally. We don't want to harm anyone or anything by our intention, by our thoughts, by our actions, by anything that we do. And so, uh, you know, so we have to be, so it's useful for us to be looking at, you know, how are we acting and how are we talking and how are we thinking? And if we engage in, behavior that is 
small, small minded, that is critical, that is judgmental, um, that's argumentative. These things all create internal disharmony, violence. And so in order to be harmless, we need to come back to a place where we can be um, so mindful and so cognizant and so conscious of how we're acting with others. What do we say? What do we say to others? Do we say things that are hurtful and harmful? They may be true, but if we say them and they are harmful and hurtful, this is not useful. So it's best for us if we don't have any, my mother used to say, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything. It's pretty practical. So, um, but, and then also we don't want to, to hold uh, thoughts of harm and violence, ideas, because remember our, our consciousness, our field of awareness is connected with everything and what we hold in our mind contributes to mass consciousness. And so we have to be careful about overreacting and, and intending harm to individuals that may be, you know, aberrant, that may be acting out, that may be doing terrible things. And so, again, it's, it's uh, for our benefit, for our spiritual benefit, to understand that individuals are all perfect expressions. They're all expressions of this uh, one reality, of ultimate reality. They're all expressions of God. But they are oftentimes enchanted. Oftentimes they miss the point. Oftentimes they are um, suffering under the effect of their karmas, of their past actions, of the influences, of the environment. So, so even the, the, the worst, craziest, uh, aberrant behavior uh, that we can think about, if we go back and we, and we had a chance to do the long interview, to look at the whole story from the time this person was born to how they grew up and what the influences and effects were. And if we, once we see this, then we begin to go, wow, I can understand how this person is so small-minded, how this person is so fearful, they feel like they have to be aggressive, you know, how, the, how these things come about. And so in this way, we can have compassion even for the people who are treating us badly, we can have compassion for the people who are treating other people badly. We don't have to condone what they do. We don't have to support what they do, but we can certainly resist the temptation within us to wish them harm. So harmlessness means this is an inside job, not just not fighting on the outside, but not harming even in our mind and with our intention. And one of the places where this gets overlooked so many times is with respect to ourself. So uh, what do we think about ourselves? What ideas are we carrying around? Do we feel that we're limited, that we're not worthy? Do we feel that, that we're incapable, that we're somehow we're victims and we, and, and we just don't have the, the intellect or we don't have the power, we don't, there's something missing. And so we, are constantly judging and being critical of ourselves because this is harmful, you see. This reinforces ideas that are not true. So so what Patanjali says, and as we'll go through the rest of these, what he says is the way to address these problems when we see them and we find that we are having harmful intentions, harmful thoughts, even about ourselves, he says we should adopt the opposite Adopt the opposite in order to neutralize these feelings. So again, if we have a if we have a, a feeling that we wish we could harm, you know, this this person or this, you know, the situation that is creating so much unhappiness and unrest and, and disharmony for other people, and we think, wow, this person really needs to be they need to be put out there in the stocks and pillories and people can throw tomatoes at them because they're really acting out. You know, We intend harm. And so Patanjali says, what we need to do is to create compassion. We need to create compassion and see how, how much they must be suffering to be in a, in a mind state, in a state of consciousness where this is acceptable, where this makes any sense. And so if we ask ourselves, we can come back to this place where we are neutralizing this 
intended this uh, tendency to be harmful by understanding and compassion love you see this will balance this will harmonize this will def uh, defuse the situation so once again we don't have to we don't have to certainly don't have to support it and we don't have to and we can do whatever we can practically to be able to fix situations that are that are not uh, useful you know where there is harm and, and uh, disharmony being done but we don't have to do so with this inner attitude of hate and and um, wish for doing harm wish for punishing you say so it can be useful for us to to really look at that and once again to come back to ourself and just ask ourselves are we harming ourselves are we doing anything to our personal self that will that is not useful it is uh, not in harmony what we with what we know to be the ideal uh, are we eating correctly you know do we eat uh, organic fresh mostly vegetarian uh, or do we eat a lot of junk food and things that will that create toxins ama that you know have make heaviness in the system do we get some exercise and move the body so that it can function because it needs to move it's designed that way you know are we getting enough rest if we're not doing those things this is harmful and so harmlessness means that we are taking care we are nurturing and supporting and taking care of ourselves and not doing the things that might be harmful so this makes sense uh so then the next of our uh yamas our restrictions our restraints is truthfulness so we are encouraged to be truthful that is speak the truth and to live truthfully to live with integrity to be what we are not to pretend to be something different but rather to allow ourselves to express as what we are so we don't have to put on airs we don't have to pretend to be something and you know it's really refreshing when we finally become comfortable enough with ourselves to be truthful and to have integrity when we become comfortable enough then we find that it's a whole lot easier to act and to interact we don't have to remember what role am i playing now and of course on the on the very basic level of course of course truthfulness says don't lie and and if we start to lie then we can really get wrapped up in a problem because we don't remember what we lied and who we told which lie to and i had a, i had a uh, wasn't a close friend an acquaintance um for a couple of years when I was uh, building furniture when I was doing woodwork and this fellow uh, came in and shared our workspace our shop wood shop for for some time and and he was a really nice guy I mean just a sweetheart and very you know open and accommodating and very friendly and outgoing gregarious and he was a compulsive liar he would tell clients that were he was fixing furniture he would repair antiques and he would tell a client oh yes your thing's ready i'm almost finished you can pick it up tomorrow and he hadn't even started it and he didn't plan to be there tomorrow when the person came to pick it up and i used to sit there and i would go how can you do that how can i mean how can you just stand there and lie to somebody right in their face or on the phone uh, knowing full well that this is not going to happen so so that's an extreme case but I, I i mean i observe this so but in little ways sometimes we feel like well if i say that what i really think if i say what's really you know in my heart they're going to judge me or they're going to think less of me or you know so we so we hold back and we don't say what is true and again like mom said if it's if you don't have anything nice to say then maybe you just don't say anything uh, don't have an opinion and we have to also balance truthfulness with harmlessness so sometimes we can say what's true and it's harmful we can tell people things that um that really you know it, it is not useful and it really is hurtful to them so so we have to ask ourselves is what i'm doing and as i'm being truthful is what i'm doing creating harm for someone or perhaps we talk about someone you know who's not here with us and we say oh this person does this and they did that and we're kind of critical and you know uh 
gossipy. And this, even though the person's not here, we are gossiping and saying things about this person, and that is putting ideas in someone else's head or reinforcing ideas in our head if we're listening to this. And so, so this too is harmful. So saying something, you know, disrespecting or, uh, you know, talking about the reputation or something of a person who's not even with us can still be harming them. So we want to be impeccable. We want to be very conscious of what we're saying and how we're saying and our, our interactions and our communication so that we're always up and above board and always as much as possible being positive and optimistic and forward thinking. So we want to be truthful. And then um, the next one is to be uh, non-stealing. So non-stealing means that we don't, you know, sneak in and take things from people that we don't actually take stuff that's not ours uh, and and what roy used to say was non-stealing means that we don't even intend to take something or to have something that is not ours by right of consciousness something that we don't that we haven't owned it hasn't come to us as a result of our being open and receptive to it so the universe is always supplying is always um working in harmony with our ability to exceed, to accept and to imagine and to feel. See? So, so we attract what we need to us in the course of our life and much, much of what comes as a result of our, uh, whatever we're holding in consciousness, whatever we believe to be possible, whatever we believe we deserve. And so as soon as we start to think, I need to, take that from that person or I need to take this thing I need to figure out a way to get this we are making a huge mistake because now we're thinking that we have to manipulate the universe rather than allowing the universe to be its natural supportive self and so this creates limitation in our own mind and consciousness and when we talk about non-stealing we're not just talking about material things we don't want to steal someone's reputation we don't want to steal the, you know, uh, talked about this before, uh, images, you know, people, people go and find a beautiful picture on uh, somebody's Facebook page or someplace on the internet, and then they copy it and they paste it into their thing and it becomes part of theirs. And so this is, this is stealing. This is not, you know, this person has created whatever this is by in, in their consciousness. And so to go and just, uh, take this and use it however we want. This is not in harmony with this idea of non-stealing. So, and when we're not stealing, we're not accepting anything that's not ours by right of consciousness, and we're not counting on anybody else's stuff, then we become self-reliant and we, bec and we become more grounded, more aware, more tuned in um, to the supportive nature of the universe. And Patanjali says that when we're established in non-stealing, Jewels and gems rain down on us. We have everything that we need. The supply is endless, see, is the result. Just like he says, when we're established in a harmlessness, then there is no enmity. There is no, no one, nothing intends any harm for us. When we're grounded, established in harmlessness, then there is nothing to harm us. And so, so non-stealing, when we get our, you know, we understand that the universe is supportive and we rely upon that for our sustenance, for everything that we have, then it in turn comes and supplies us and gives us what we need, everything we need. So the next of our yamas is the, is the uh, injunction against wasting energy. Brahmacharya is, is to be conserving our energy, our life force, to be taking care of this so it's not being wasted. So we don't we don't deplete our energy with restless activity, with non-useful activity. We recognize that the body has uh, has these amazing processes which build and they build the tissues and then the tissues become more refined. And in the process of our living, our energy that we take in is refined and it becomes this very fine essence, this very fine power, ojas, is what they call this in Ayurveda. 
And this ojas, this primal energy, really is this strength of being that we have within us, this solidity, this integrity. And so when we come around, when we're around someone uh, like Mr. Davis, you know, we come into his presence and this ojas, this, this, um, this life force, this power emanates. We feel this aura, this uh, field of energy around this individual and we come into it and it just resonates. It just, it just turns us, turns us on literally into this, um, this higher, this more expanded state of awareness. And this power, this resonance comes from conservation of energy. So we're not wasting our energy. We're not wasting our energy with useless activity, restlessness, with too much um, external sensory input and interaction, but rather we conserve. We, we bring our energy within and we try to nurture that and, and, uh, and be good, good uh, stewards, good custodians of it. And of course, we also want to be not wasting our energy in the form of money. So money is just a, a convenient way of exchanging and moving energy around. So we want to be responsible for our resources. We want, don't want to be uh, wasting or being uh, cavalier about the energy on the planet. So we are, you know, effective and efficient in how we use energy and, you know, electricity, whatever resources we have. Uh, we can be mindful of that everything that we actually have, everything that we use, uh, all of our material objects require energy to be made and to be put into the marketplace and to be brought to us. So there's energy involved in, in the production of everything. And so we want to kind of ask ourselves, well, you know, do I need that? Do I need to be able to use, to be using all the energy it takes to create this thing? Do I really need that in my life? Or, you know, or if I'm being, being mindful, I can say, well, maybe not, maybe I don't need that. Or maybe this is useful. <clears throat> no judgment about it, but there is discernment and discrimination to make sure that we don't become, uh, just consumers. We just have to have more stuff and more stuff because we can and because we get bored with what we have and this unfulfilled desires continue to drive us to acquire, become acquisitive, to have more and more and more. So, so we can be mindful that all of these things are forms of energy and we can be responsible for how we use energy, how we use our body energy, how we use our mental energy. You know, the mind, the brain actually takes a disproportionate, a hugely disproportionate amount of the energy of the body. So when we're using our mind, it's taking something like 20, 25% of all the energy. And, and so this is a big resource. And when we're, when our, when we're using our mind to constantly be processing information and data and to be constantly on the cell phone or the tablet or the computer, or the telephone, or, you know, talking to people, or all this mental, mental, mental stuff. And this aggravates vata, you know, it creates an imbalance, but it also is, is wasteful and not mindful of the use of our energy. So we need to spend, have some quiet time, quiet time. Of course, meditation is, is uh, very useful for this, but also just to go outside and sit in nature and be quiet and not have to be thinking but rather to be conserving and appreciating and feeling the prana, the life force, the energy that is expressing as us and that is interacting with the environment around us. It's going to be very useful. So being uh, cognizant, being conscious of how our energy is being used. This is another, uh, another of the yamas, the restraints. And then finally is non-attachment or non-acquisitiveness or uh, or not being greedy, that is not not being constantly looking for more stuff and more stuff and not being attached to the stuff we have, but rather being able to kind of um, live a little more loosely, a little less controlled and compulsively. So non-attachment. So we have these five yamas or restraints, and I think about the, think of these like the guardrails on our spiritual path. These just help to keep us in the center. 
And if we think about these and it's, and it's useful, we should really do this, you know, think about what the, how these mean and how we relate to them. But if we think about them as we move harmoniously and incorporate all of these yamas, these restraints, we find that life becomes very easy for us. That a lot of the conflicts and a lot of the upsets that are constantly going through our mind that are in this, this uh, internal dialogue are related to the places where we're not being harmless and where we're not being truthful, and where we're, you know, being acquisitive and we're not paying attention to how we're using our energy. These, these situations create the fluctuations and the disharmony and the upset and the unresolved stuff that's going on in the background. So this is why Patanjali starts off and he says, you know, the first thing to do is kind of get your life in order on a practical level, be very grounded and interact with life consciously, mindfully, be nice to people, you know, tell the truth, feel comfortable in your own skin. Don't waste a lot of time and don't waste a lot of energy. Don't feel like you have to take something in order to have something. I knew a person one time who, who was a, a survivor. He was, you know, a manipulator and a survivor. And he had, he had the idea, the philosophy that there is only a limited amount of stuff. And so in order for me to get stuff, I have to take it from somebody else. The limited amount of stuff. And so my job is to see how much I can take, how much I can get for me. And I know that in order to get it, I have to take it from someone else. This is, you know, this is a very sad place to be, but it's also very common. So we want to be, we want to be grounded in awareness that the universe is supportive and nurturing. So when we have all these characteristics, when we have established ourselves in the yamas, then we live harmoniously. And then the niyamas, these are the observances, and they go on to say um, that we should be pure, that we should be cleanliness. So the body should be clean, the mind should be clean, the environment should be clean. So when we look to purity and see to um, cleanliness on all levels, then once again, we don't have the the uh, distractions and the distortions and the heaviness, the tamasic heaviness that is, you know, that um, uh, of impurities that creates disharmony. But rather, when we are established in purity and we look to that, that's important to us, then, then everything becomes much more harmonious. And then contentment. The next one is contentment. To be content all the time in all circumstances. If we, if we say, well, what, you know, Exactly how can I imagine the world to be in this moment? You know, what would I, what would my desire be? And if our desire is for everything to be exactly the way it is, that's contentment. If our desire is for everything to be the way it is right now, we are content, you see. And if our desire is to change and to manipulate and to move things around, um, then we have to look at that because this is another imbalance another thing that will be uh, affecting our mind when we sit to meditate that will be pushing us around a little bit so yes it's okay to have desires we have to you know we have to take care of the body and we move ahead we have purposes to accomplish so that's all part of our our life and our path but in moment to moment in this moment i can say i'm content there's nothing i need in this moment there's nothing i would change in this moment so contentment is is a is not a, a big term, you know, long term philosophical conversation. It's in this moment, each moment, I can feel whole, content, uh, moving in harmony with the universe, and um, and being inspired, led, guided to do whatever needs to be happening. But there's no compulsion about change. So contentment. And then he goes on. And the next three of the observances are the ones that we began this chapter with, which is uh, self-discipline. So we, we uh, make choices about how we will act and what we will do and then follow through. Uh, self-study, intensive self-study, study the nature of ourself and the nature of God, the nature of our relationship, allow our awareness to be expanded by this information, by the study. 
and then finally to rely upon the universe to rely upon god at all times to to eliminate the sense of separation the illusion that we are outside you see but to live in the awareness this harmonious awareness of the wholeness of all things god is fully present where i am as me you see ishvara pranidhana so the, together these are the uh, the restraints and the observances and this creates the structure the foundation the ability that we have to move forward in a very effective way in our spiritual awakening path so this this is the foundation and i remember remember roy commenting years ago back in probably in late 70s or early 80s um and he said he said uh he said, someone asked Yogananda, he said, Master, it's easy for you to say these things. It's easy for you to say to do these things because you're a master. But how do you expect us, mere mortals, how do you expect us to be able to follow all these guidelines? And Yogananda's response was, how do you think I got to be the way I am? How do you think this, how do you think this happens? This happens by paying attention and incorporating these principles and roy said roy went on to say he says an enlightened being doesn't need to think about these they don't need to pay attention to these because they already live this way these are the characteristics of one who is living fully in harmony with life and so as we align ourselves with these principles as we incorporate these yamas and niyamas, the, the restraints and the observances, as we bring these in and be, begin to actualize these, we move ourselves closer and closer to living as a saint lives, as an enlightened person lives. And by doing this, we support our ability to wake up. We support our spiritual awakening path. So this is, this is really important, this is really useful to pay attention to this very basic, very practical, very grounding principles. And then he goes on uh, and he says, the next step, so those are the first two, the third step is asana or posture. So now that we've become, have a foundation, we have a grounding, now it's time for us to, uh, to move into this deeper level of awareness and we begin by sitting. So we adopt asana and asana means seat. So we adopt a posture, and the posture should be one which is supportive, so we can be attentive, bright, awake, aware, uh, and at the same time relaxed. So it's relaxed attention. So we want to find a posture that's comfortable for us, that we can sit in for some time without the body being distracted, without being, uh, you know, uh, having the body have to... Uh, push and pull and use muscles to hold us up. I'm going to adjust my asana. Um, and so, so we find this comfortable posture position. So this is the third. Then once we have our asana, once we are seated and, and comfortable, then we begin pranayama. Prana is life force, energy that flows through us, that animates us, that keeps everything working. And ayama means the free flowing of prana so we can use specific techniques to work in harmony with our breath in order to bring some balance and the harmony into our internal system and so so because the breath and the spirit and the prana are all directly related uh, in ancient hebrew the word ruha meant breath and spirit the same word and so as we go back in ancient, ancient times, they saw no difference between breath and spirit, this essence of being and this life force, this prana. And so by working with our breath, we can help to direct and allow this prana to flow freely. And, um, and there are many pranayamas and, and, um, and these can produce different effects in the system. Uh, but one of the ones that we, recommend for our meditation practice is simply alternate nostril breathing. Now, this is very simple. We just breathe through in through one nostril, out through the other, into the other, out through the other. So we just breathe in, hold, just for a moment, and then breathe out. 
and then we breathe in and then breathe out. So we're breathing in through the right, out through the left, in through the left, out through the right. And we can just very simply do this and without you know, any force um, and just observe. And we'll see that after just a few cycles, we can do four or five or seven cycles of alternate nostril breathing. And we see that this balances our internal energies. This is a pranayama, which has the effect of balancing the sympathetic and the parasympathetic, the activating and pacifying. It brings the system into harmony and balance very quickly. So it can be useful, uh, especially if we're feeling a little scattered a little or a little emotional. It can be useful to just do a few rounds of alternate nostril breathing, this pranayama, in order to get grounded. And and it can be useful also just as an experiment, if it if it feels uh, feels useful to you, um, to experiment with doing alternate nostril breathing without physically closing the nostrils. So we can send our attention. We remember attention is to reach out. So we use our attention and we tell our left nostril that we want it to be open. We want the air to come through that. And we just sort of put our attention there. Breathe in and allow ourselves to feel an increase of air. And then we say, okay, now exhale through this side. And we don't say it, but we're intending with our intention. We very gently breathe in through one side, out through the other, back in through this side. And with practice, it's really quite remarkable. With practice, we can do alternate nostril breathing without having to touch the nostrils. So this is a very good exercise in learning to focus attention and also observing how responsive the body is to our intention. So pranayama, and then once we have uh, balanced the system using our pranayama, then we interiorize the attention. That is, we, we, we withdraw the attention from the senses, from the world around us, from the information that's coming in. So we close our eyes and we, we, allow our attention now to be focused and and the place that's ideal you know that's for most of us it's recommended is up here at the area between the eyebrows the third eye center the spiritual eye we can just simply direct our attention now to this point so because it's a, our attention is directed fully to this point we are not paying attention to the sounds we're not paying attention to the temperature we're not paying attention to the feeling of the weight of our body on the chair our attention is now all being directed inside so this is this now we become we become interiorized so we withdraw the attention interior focus and then we choose an object some something to focus that attention on so first we become interiorized, then the next step is to choose an object, and this object can be light. You can look in in here and look deeply into inner space and see if there, you know, see what emerges, if there are lights or colors or geometric forms. Some people are very visually oriented and this happens. Maybe it's sound. Maybe we hear ohm or a vibration or something within. Or maybe we use a mantra. So we watch the breath. This becomes our object. Whatever it is, we focus the attention, focus the attention with concentration. And when our concentration becomes effective, when it becomes consistent, so now we're, say, watching the breath, and we're able to continue to watch the breath, and the mind, the thoughts in the mind subside. They become quiet enough so we can really just sit with the breath and just we're hanging with it there and this becomes contemplation. So we have withdrawal of attention, we have from the senses, then we have concentration, focusing attention, contemplation, more feeling one with and allowing ourselves to go deeper with whatever our object is. And then finally, we, we make the then uh, finally, when concentration becomes established and we're and we're more deeply involved with our object, then this becomes meditation. So meditation is a a process. There is not a, a 
a delineation where we cross over this line and now we've just gone from uh, focused attention into concentration and now concentration has become contemplation. The lines, the divisions are blurry, but there is this gradual awakening process or interiorizing process that happens. So, and, and then finally the result is samadhi or oneness consciousness, yoga. So this is the bringing together of the attention, the awareness with the object of awareness. And ultimately in this case, it is our essence of being. So then samadhi, we rest in the experience, the realization, the experience and the, and the awareness and the knowledge of our true nature. And again, even when we come to this level of samadhi, it has uh, some, some levels. It is a continuing process. So in the beginning, makes, uh, it is said that we are experiencing suvikalpa samadhi, su with vikalpa imagining concept. So we can become very, uh, very interiorized and have this awareness of our larger self, of our uh, uh, an awareness of our true experience of our being. And at the same time, there are still some concepts, there are still some things floating around. So we feel very expanded, very grounded, very awake, and yet there are still some things happening. So this is suvikopa with concept, with idea. I still have this gentle sense that I am having this experience of expansion. Still have this little awareness of things happening in the background. I'm disregarding them, but they're still there, okay? And then, and so we move through these stages of su-vikalpa with concept. We move through these to near-vikalpa. Near is none, no concept, no object, nothing. So there's nothing to be aware of except awareness. We just rest in being. So this is, again, a progressive stage of unfoldment in our deeper practice. So, so together, this is uh, Patanjali's uh, formula for spiritual awakening. We pay attention to the bases. We become basics. We become grounded in living a moral and ethical life so that we don't have unfinished business. So we don't have things that we're worrying about. So we don't have to be concerned about what people are saying about us or what might happen or what they might find out or you know, or what's going to happen in the future. Everything is fine. It's okay. So we, we become moral and ethical. So that makes life very easy. And then we, we establish ourselves in purity and contentment. And so now we, we feel okay wherever we are. So now the mind is tranquil. Now we're able to be very tranquil and very calm. And that sets the stage for this deeper inner experience. Okay. This is Patanjali's eight steps to uh, spiritual awakening and and highly recommended that we go back and review this, that we become very conversant with it, and that we begin to, to whatever level to be able to engage with uh, with these practices so that they become incorporated, so that this becomes our life. So our life is established just as the life of a saint or a great one, a master. We can do that too. I remember, I remember Roy telling us so many times that when he read the autobiography of a yogi and he read these stories of these saints, he said, I want to be like that. And I believe I can. See? And Yogananda, when he was young, young, you know, just barely in high school, he wanted to be a yogi. He wanted to be like that. He knew that he could. And he, and he did whatever he could to be able to allow himself to have that process to awaken. He would go hang around with saints. He would have conversations. He would stay up all night meditating. He would read the Bhagavad Gita, whatever it took, you see, to be like that. So we have to believe it's possible, and then we have to make this important. So, and this is, this is the tradition, the lineage that we come from is the promise that if we just show up and do the work, we too can become masters. We too can become just like our guru lineage, like our, like our wonderful masters here. We can be just like them. 
something, not separate and not, gosh, someday, you know, maybe I could uh, aspire maybe in, in the next lifetime or maybe it'll take 10 lifetimes. But Roy would say, no, do it now. Wake up now and you can do it. And this is just a matter of a choice. It's an intention. So we are highly uh, encouraged, highly recommended for us to make that choice, make this important, and then do the best we can to begin to move ourselves in harmony with these principles. And as we do so, even as we make small changes, we begin to notice improvement. We begin to notice the benefits. And so this will, this helps to encourage us and support us in, in continuing with our practice. Okay. So any questions? And by the way, uh, you all know this, but as a reminder, uh, this book, The Science of Self-Realization, is Mr. Davis's commentary on these yoga sutras. And so in here, you know, everything that we're talking about, everything that I'm talking about, and and much more directly from his consciousness and his point of view is all available. And this little book, um, he, he has rewritten it rewritten his commentary a few times over his life the first time was the first one i read was this is reality and so as he as he developed more insights he would rewrite this but basically the essential information and his take on it has remained the same and this book has been my you know this has been my book that ha that i would take if there was nothing else on the planet if i was out on the desert island this is my book and I've been reading this book for almost 50 years, and it continues continues to reveal new insights and new uh, motivation and new inspiration all the time, every time I pick it up. So I highly recommend that, um, that you go back and find that copy that you have on your bookshelf and go read it again. You'll find it's interesting. And if you've never read it, if you haven't been exposed to that, then then I highly recommend that you uh, obtain a copy and and uh, dig in because you'll find it extremely useful. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Namaste, peace, harmony, joy.